All right, let's take our Bibles now, and if you'll open them to Philippians chapter 3. This evening we're continuing our thoughts in the beginning of this third chapter, where Paul is talking about the difference between a true believer in Jesus Christ and one who is a false professor and one who teaches false doctrines for salvation. Sometimes we think that the uh, heresies that we see in what's called the Christian world today has taken 2,000 years or more to develop, and we're seeing more and more of those every single day as if they didn't have the same kinds of problems in the first century. But the truth of the matter is that Before the first century was out, Paul was already dealing with many of the very same things that we face uh, among those who call themselves Christians today and the false gospels that are being preached. There was a lot of heresy in Paul's time, and none of them was more pervasive than the idea that you could mix Judaism in with Christianity. Now, true biblical Judaism, and I'm talking about Old Testament Judaism, should have led the people directly into Christianity. I mean, that is a natural progression because uh, Jesus is the Savior, the Messiah, who came from Israel. They should have gone right into Christianity. But there were a lot of changes that took place during the intertestament period. And by the time that Christ was born, there, there were just very few people who really understood what biblical Judaism was and what the religion had done was that it morphed into a a system of unbiblical laws and uh, self-righteousness as a means of salvation. So when John the Baptist came on the scene, which was 400 years after the end of the Old Testament, uh, when he came on the scene after those many, many years of silence when God spoke to him, John was given the, the job of preparing the way for Christ and calling for repentance among the people from the, from the false practices that they had grown during that time. Now, some of the people did repent, and, of course, they trusted Christ, and thus we have the beginnings of the Christian church. But then there were many others who seemed to recognize Christ, and some of them who did say, well, yes, he is the Messiah, but they were unwilling to give up their self-righteousness. And so they insisted that Gentile Christians must conform to the old Jewish rites and custom. Now, to Paul and the apostles, and really even, of course, to the Word of God itself, that doctrine that you could mix these two things, that you could mix law and grace, to them was unchristian, it was unbiblical, it was a perversion of the gospel of Christ. And the error was so serious that when uh, Paul spoke about that very problem to the Galatian church, he told them that if anybody comes to you and he preaches any other gospel than what we have received, anything different from what the apostles have taught and what Jesus Christ himself taught, he said, let those people be accursed. But those errors of Judaism followed Paul just about everywhere that he went. And that's because the Jewish people had been spread all throughout the different provinces of the Roman Empire. And so when Paul went to start churches, these Judaizers would come in and they tried to confuse the gospel of Christ. They would tell the Gentiles that they needed to conform to the Old Testament law and especially this one particular law, and that's the law of circumcision. And so you find Paul in various places in the New Testament addressing that very problem and showing them the true doctrine of Christ and confronting all of those errors that these people were trying to bring in. Well, in the third chapter of Philippians, Paul addressed that problem again. 
And he encouraged the Philippian people to think back on the doctrines and what he had written there in those first two chapters. Think back on that. Realize the truth of the doctrine. Understand very clearly that their righteousness does not come from them. It comes from Christ. Now this evening, I want to continue the message from last week, pointing out the difference between us and them. That's true believers in Jesus Christ and those who are false professors of the faith. So let's stand, if you would, please. Let's look at chapter 3, the first three verses of what we're going to read tonight. And mainly our text verse will be from verse number 3. Paul writes, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Heavenly Fathers, we come to you tonight. We ask you, Lord, that you would help us in the message tonight to be very clear about what's to be said and as we get into a few things here, it might appear a little bit difficult at times. We Lord, pray, Lord, you'd open up our hearts and give us wisdom and understanding of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The first three verses of this chapter make it very clear that Paul is refuting specifically the error of circumcision for salvation. Now, the error here in, in uh, the Philippian church, also in the Galatian church, and those many other places that I told you that Paul addressed this, is the problem of telling Jewish people, or rather Gentile people, that they need to be circumcised in order to be saved. But the problem of circumcision for salvation, it would be the same if we were talking about any other thing that's added to grace. Any other type of work that you might want to mention, when that is added to grace, when it's not grace alone, by faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, then there is an error in the belief in a way that a person can be justified. Now, as I pointed out last week, Paul is not polite when he talks about this. He's not reserved about it in any measure. He thinks about the seriousness of this. He has utter contempt for the doctrine and for the people who preach these false doctrines that he's speaking of. He used two very scathing words in that second verse, and he describes these people in ways that, well, perhaps we wouldn't talk in the pulpit today because these are just biting insults. He calls them dogs. That's the first thing. And that was a really a Jewish way of speaking about Gentiles. When they detested Gentiles, they would call them dogs. I mean, this was a terrible insult for Paul to say this about the Jews. But that's the word that he used. Then he goes on and he calls them the concision. And as I told you last week, the concision there refers to this doctrine of circumcision. And what he says about these Jews is you are not practicing this God-given right of circumcision, but what you're doing, you're simply mutilating the body. And that's what concision means. It means to mutilate. So it's not a holy ritual any longer. It's just mutilation. And then he goes on in verse number 3 to describe the difference between true believers and these crass, self-righteous, despicable teachers of false doctrine. He says, we are the circumcision. And that means that we are the ones who are truly set apart to God. We are the ones who don't show outwardly our religion, but we have a real religion of the heart. Now, circumcision was originally intended to be a separating type of ritual for the people of God. It was something that said that uh, these people are chosen by God. They've been set apart by God. 
And Paul pointed out in the book of Romans that the true followers of Christ are not the ones who have been circumcised in their body, but he says these are the ones who have been circumcised in their hearts. What he meant by that is that they'd had sin cut away from their inner being because of their faith in Christ. That's what he states in Romans chapter 2. He says, For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and that circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. When we come to Philippians 3, verse 3, Philippians 3 is a restatement of that very same doctrine. He says, For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. So the true circumcision is not what's done to the body, it's what's done to the heart. Well, then we have three defining characteristics that show the difference between us and them. Now, the first one we talked about last week, and that was the right way that we worship. We worship God in the Spirit. Last week, we defined worship this way. Worship is human response to the perceived presence of the divine, a presence which transcends normal human activity and is holy. And I made the statement that worship is our, is our realization of God's personal touch that causes us to give a response to God. Now, I don't have time to rehearse all of last week's discussion. If you weren't here for that, I would encourage you to get a copy of that message so you can really understand what we mean when we're talking about proper worship. And there was a couple or three points that I made along with that. We worship God properly, not by doing it by desire, or not by duty, but by desire. And we do it uh, with meaning and not with means. And by desire, I mean that we're not forced out of obligation to worship God, but we truly do want to praise Him and glorify Him and give our worship to Him. There's an attitude of the heart where we want to adore God and we want to show that to Him. And then we do it with meaning and not with means. And that says that we don't have rituals that we follow just to have rituals. We don't give liturgies or use liturgies in worship just for the sake of liturgy. But we come here and we worship God to have an encounter with him. God is the object of our worship. And then I mentioned a third area of worship. And that is that we worship with fear and not with the flesh. We worship with reverence for God, not because we want to please our emotions. So our worship is not the satisfaction of our fleshly appetites. Our worship is to do what pleases God, not what pleases us. Now, I want to go on then to the second statement in this verse that describes the difference between us and them. First of all is the right way that we worship. That shows a difference. But then secondly, the right person that we praise. He says, we worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus. The grand heresy of all of those who put works in front of grace is that is the false teaching. It's a false teaching when it puts works in front of grace. And the grand heresy is about who should get the praise for salvation. When works are the focus, and whether that's circumcision or whether we're talking about some kind of ritual that's performed, if it's prayers, it's, if it's responses, if it's good thoughts, if it's human, humanitarian acts, if it's any of that, no matter what it is, if we place those things in front of the grace of God, the result will be that man gets the praise instead of Christ. 
Now, that's the reason that we so strenuously reject the idea that repentance and faith result in in regeneration rather than being the fruits of regeneration. And that's because whenever repentance and faith are, are placed before and we believe that regeneration is the response of man, then what we come out with is a conclusion that I get all the glory or at least I'm going to get some of the glory because I help myself to get saved. Now, I grant you that many people who disagree with us on this point uh, and would wholeheartedly deny that they believe that they're seeking any glory for their salvation. And I'll give them this. I believe that they're sincere about that. They really aren't trying to do that. But the problem is they haven't really figured out the end result of their doctrine because their doctrine betrays the very thing that they're trying to prove. It proves the opposite of it. So we don't want to get this wrong. What we want to do is we want to stay as far away as we can from the Judaizers. And so what we do is we place salvation entirely into the hands of God and that in the regenerating work of God, man is totally passive in that. Now, if you want to argue about where conversion fits in, uh, and that's your repentance and faith, whether that comes uh, uh, right after regeneration or whether it comes uh, before that, then we can grant a little bit of latitude in that area. But a person must have this secret work of God going on in his heart. Now, in conversion, a person is active. That's when a person expresses his, his faith, his belief in Jesus Christ, that repentance. But regeneration is something that occurs beneath the consciousness of man. And that's when the Holy Spirit begins to prepare the heart for the gospel. The Holy Spirit begins to open us up and enable us that we might have repentance and faith. Now, I think you know that. We go over and over that again and again and again. And we do that because here is something that must be ingrained in our minds. And that's because if we want proper interpretation of Scripture, just like we find here in Philippians chapter 3, then we must have that right. So we rejoice in Christ and we have no confidence in the flesh. That's what Paul means, no confidence in the flesh. Because our flesh is not worthy of any confidence. Our flesh can never do what only Christ can do. Now, let me give you four statements about the right person that we praise. First of all, Christ is central. Christ is central. Now, what's the difference between us and them? Well, if we wanted to point out one essential identifying factor that shows a difference between us and them, what would that be? Well, somebody might say, well, we go to church. But some of them go to church too. And people say, well, here's the difference. We've been baptized. Well, that's not the identifying factor because those people have been baptized too. They'll say, well, then uh, uh, we preach from the Bible. But they preach from the Bible too. The problem is there are a lot of misinterpretations there that confuse a lot of things. So what is it? What is that essential identifying factor that makes us different from them? Well, we'd have to say it's this, that Christ is central. Is Christ essential to our faith or not? And I would submit to you that for many people who call themselves Christians, that Christ is not really essential to anything that they do. I mean, if they were to wake up tomorrow morning and they had proof, some way of knowing this, that Christ is not real, the Bible is not true, uh, nothing that we read there about salvation, none of that really matters. If they were to find that out tomorrow, you know what they would do? They'd still go to church next Sunday. The church doors would still be open. The pastor would get up there and he would preach. And they'd go on just like they did before. Because Christ is not essential to what they do. And that's because they're preaching a social gospel. 
You don't have to have Christ for a social gospel. You can feed the poor and and you can help stamp out AIDS across the world. You can do that without Christ. You don't need him for that. And so these people can carry out all the things that they do because they're not really concerned about Christ. They can do away with Christ. They don't need him because he's not essential. He's not central to anything that they preach. But we praise him. And we can make this next statement. We praise him because Christ is better and beyond all others. Reliance upon self in any area of salvation puts you on par with him. Well, how could that be? I mean, how could we ever come to the conclusion that both I and Christ are essential for my salvation? Now, I can step back and I can look at this very simply at the beginning of things and and see how I came into the world and see how Christ came in the world and there's a difference. I came in a depraved creature. I have a sinful, fallen nature. But Jesus came in as the virgin-born Son of God. He had no sin. He had no ability to sin. I come into this world haughty. I come in self-sufficient and conceited. And all persons, all people in the world are born that way. We always think about number one. We're, We're top of the list no matter what. We come into the world that way. But Jesus came into the world humbly. He came in as a servant. He came in condescending. So all that I need to do is back up. Step back and look at him, and I see there's no way I can measure up to him. I mean, I look at the best people in the world, ones that I call my heroes, or ones that I think that I could pattern my life after, ones that that I idolize. And yet I still see that all of those people, no matter how good that I think that they are, they all have feet of clay. They're all sinners, just like I'm a sinner. So there's nobody that can compare to Jesus. So I know, I know that I'm praising the right person. And so also I know that if I'm going to boast of anything, I boast because I belong to him. And that's the third thing on this list. Boast that we belong to him. Boast that we belong to him. Now, what I mean by that, I'm not not saying that we ought to glory in ourselves, not as if I did anything to become Christ's child. I didn't do anything for that. I'm so devoid of worth in this area that I'm not even worthy to lift my eyes and to look at him. And yet, when I contemplate what Christ did for me, I can't help but boast about him, about how good that he is, how kind that he is, how compassionate and loving he is. The kenosis that we read about in chapter 2, that was all for me. All of that was for me. And I believe this with all my heart, that if I had been the only person in the world that needed to be saved, that Christ would have come and given his life for me. He would have come into this world to save me, And that's because salvation is a personal work. Christ came to do that with his intention. Now, one reason that I really can't accept this idea of a general atonement is because it takes away the personal aspect of salvation. I mean, I'm not out here as one in the sea of humanity that Christ decided to come and save, and and he just lumped us all together, and he doesn't know who we are. I, I believe that when Christ died for me, he had me on his mind. I mean, he had my name written down, and he knew that he was giving his life for me. He was thinking about me when he was on that cross. And so I know he's the right person to praise, because the difference between me and them is I don't mistakenly dilute his praise by trying to mix it up with any response that I give, mix it up with anything that I've done, any good intention or any activity. He did it all. He deserves all the praise. And so I boast in him. 
Now, the fourth reason that I know that he's the right person to praise is that Christ saves from sin. And doesn't it all come down to that? I mean, that isn't, the, isn't that the real question that we're considering? I mean, what is it that makes him so different? He saves from sin. Nobody else can do that. You know, it's a song that we sing, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Jesus is the only one who can save. You know, the day that I was writing this sermon, I don't think it was Jared maybe had this on his computer, but we were listening to that great theologian, Oprah Winfrey, talk about how there are many paths to God. And one of the things she... Now, she didn't just say paths to God. She, her, her theological prowess puts it this way. There are many ways to the light. There are many paths to God, she said. There have to be many paths to God. And she insisted, Christ cannot be the only way. Now, do you understand why that there's a problem with that? There's a problem because there is no other religion that deals with the question of sin. There is no other religion that has atonement for sin. There's no other religion that has a justifying sacrifice that's been made that takes all of my sin away. And the path to God has to have some way of answering the sin question. And if it doesn't, then it means that God is nothing at all different from me. There's no holiness there. There's no righteousness there. And even if I could admit that he is a holy and righteous God, if my sins are not taken care of, one minute in his presence will defile the very being that I say is holy and righteous. Well, something has to be done with the question of sin. Now, that's the very simplicity of why Jesus is the right person to praise because he's the only one who can take away my sin. That's the purpose of the incarnation. He came into this world to live a perfect life. He came here to earn righteousness that he could give to me. And he's made it possible for me to follow a path to God. He's cleansed me in his blood. And so I receive his righteousness by faith because there is an atoning sacrifice. And so the difference between me and them and between us and and Oprah Winfrey is that we know the right person we praise. We rejoice in Jesus Christ. Now, if there is some other way, then the Apostle Paul would say, well, here's all your options. Let me show you the different ways that there are to get to God, and you choose the path that you want, and any path is okay, because they're all going to the same place. Paul didn't say that. And I wonder sometimes, what makes people like Oprah Winfrey and the people that you hear on TV and all these other people... What makes them the authority on this? Why do they have the authority to make that kind of a statement? I mean, on what basis could anyone believe that there is another path to God besides Jesus Christ? Now, my question is, where is the proof? If there's another way to God, where's the proof? I have all the proof that I need. I have the Word of God. It's never been proven to be untrue. And then God has validated what he did through Jesus Christ. You remember what the validation is? That Christ is the Son of God and that he's the one who can save? I hope you know because I spent weeks talking about it from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The validation that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he can save, is the resurrection from the dead. That's what the Bible says. The validation of his atoning work is that he's the only one who can be praised because he's the only one by the power of God, the power in him, he was resurrected from the grave. The Apostle Paul said in Acts 17, And the times of this ignorance God winked at, 
But now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men. How? In that he hath raised him from the dead. So the one who is ordained by God is Jesus Christ, and God validated that by raising him from the dead. Now, if you could come up with any other type of validation by any God, anywhere, if you can show me that there's another path that has a similar validation that we have right here with Jesus Christ, I'll believe that. I'll accept that if there's some kind of validation. But you're not going to find anything. All the leaders of all these other religions, they're all dead, and they stay dead. Jesus came back to life. I say let Oprah or anybody else produce the evidence. The evidence is the resurrection. So if the Christian God, if Jehovah God is a true God, and we're going to say that he's one of the paths of God, or paths to God, if Jesus is one of the paths to God, then surely we'd have to say that his words must be true. I mean, if we have a God who is God, we ought to be able to believe what he says. So anybody who denies that Jehovah God is a true God is going to have to prove that he is a liar. And then anybody who says that he is a true God has to accept that he must tell the truth. So here's how you can throw out this idea. You can throw it all out. You can throw Christianity out on the basis that it's not a path to God because to admit that it is a path to God when the Bible itself and God himself says, I'm the only way and it's not the way, I hope you're following me. If he says it's the only way and it's not the way, then he's a liar. And if he's a liar, he can't be God. You can't have it both ways. You can't say that Christianity is a path to God when God says it's the only path to him because it makes him a liar. So what do you do? You throw all the Christians out. And so these people are trying to prove and trying to be all-inclusive of Christians and all religions. There are many paths to God. Well, the first thing they have to do is throw the Christians out. They don't have a path to God because their God's a liar. And a God can't lie. A God has to tell the truth. And so we come to the conclusion then there must be no God. We all become atheists that God is really you and God is really me. So Paul's argument is there really is a difference between us and them. We rejoice in Christ Jesus because he is the right person to praise. Now, there's a third statement that's made in this verse that shows the difference between us and them, and this one shows the right view of our value. The right view of our value. He says, For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. We have no confidence in the flesh. Now, we're different from them because we truly understand how that God looks at us. So what is our true value in God's eyes? Well, some people would argue that we are extremely valuable to God and our worth has been established by the price that God paid for us. The ultimate price that God paid for us, of course, was that he sacrificed his own son on Calvary to redeem us from our sins. Now, once in a sermon quite some time ago, I mentioned a a statement that I heard Charles Stanley make. Charles Stanley was standing on the stage. He spread out his arms wide like this, as if he was stretched out on a cross like Jesus was. And he said, you are so valuable that Christ died on the cross for you. And that statement struck me as being totally wrong. Christ's death on the cross did not establish our value. 
it established and demonstrated his value. Now, you see, what Charles Stanley did was to focus on the wrong thing. Christ did not die for us because we're valuable, but on the contrary, nothing in God's universe is so revolting, save maybe Satan himself. Nothing in the entire universe is more revolting than man. We stand against God. We're at enmity with God. The Bible says we're repulsive in God's eyes. And so, the value of Christ's blood is the thing that's established by the death on the cross because that is the only thing that God would accept to cover our sins. He takes nothing else but the blood of Jesus Christ. You've totally got the focus wrong when you say the cross validates our worth when in fact it validates Christ's work. It validates his worth. Because it took his own blood to pay that awful sin debt. And so we don't establish our worth. We have no confidence in the flesh. There is nothing valuable in us. The only payment price is what God would accept through the blood of Jesus Christ. Only his blood can avail to wash sin away. Now, if we take the focus away from Christ, then we're saying that, and, and, or we say that our value is established by the cross, then what we've done, we have forever mired ourselves in a religious system that says that man is the focal point of God's creation rather than Christ. Now that's where we have this huge error in theology today that says that theology is man-centered rather than God-centered. This is where you get the ordo salutis mixed up. Now in Ordo salutis in Latin means the order of salvation. I want to talk about that for just a minute. What is the order of salvation, the ordo salutis? Well, here's what you have in God-centered theology. In God-centered theology, you have election, you have predestination, the general call of the gospel, the inward call of the gospel, regeneration, conversion, that's repentance and faith, justification, sanctification, and then glorification. That's the scriptural order according to what we read in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 through 30. Man-centered theology changes that. Man-centered theology says, general call of the gospel, faith, then election, then repentance, then regeneration, justification, sanctification, and glorification. Now, we, we have them both up there on the screen. Give me... Well, we don't have them both. We can't see them both. But one thing you can see right here in the man-centered theology is that faith hangs out here by itself without any predisposition towards God. There's nothing here that draws man to God. You have a general call of the gospel. That means I preach the gospel, it goes out to everybody, and it's indiscriminate about who it touches, and there is no working of anybody for anything, any being, anything in God, not even the Holy Spirit, to work in that, to draw man specifically to Jesus Christ. So faith is hanging out here by itself. Now, what happens here is that effectively changes what Paul says in Philippians 3, verse number 3. It changes it to where Paul says, For we are the circumcision which worship God in spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have some confidence in the flesh. Because according to man-centered theology, the flesh is actually what moves us to repentance and faith. It's not really a sovereign act of God that does that. And some will wrongly say that, well, you can't even put sovereign and grace in the same sentence. Sovereign can't modify grace. That's man-centered theology. So what's the right view of our value? Let me give you two statements to conclude this evening. First of all, 
We are not saved by our strength. Salvation is not a cooperative effort between man and God. Now, that's known as synergism. Salvation is monergistic. And what that means is that salvation is by God's strength and God's strength alone. So we have a false view of our value. And by that, I mean any worth that we put on uh, put into salvation by ourselves, any input that we have into salvation, when we reverse the ordo salutis to put faith before regeneration, then we have things completely mixed up. We have a false view of our value whenever we put it this way, and certainly when we say that faith precedes election. Now, some will say, they'll, they'll say it, they, now we understand that election does not precede faith because election is based upon God foreseeing that you will believe. That is meaningless semantics because it's the same as saying that faith precedes election. What it does, it reverses the ordo salutis, and so it makes salvation a work of man and not of God. Now, at least it means in some degree that we're saved by some of our strength rather than completely by God's strength. Now, this, folks, has been an argument down through the history of the church. I mean, for many, many, many years, it's been an argument, and the Man-centered theology that we have up there, I mean, I'll just tell you who people like Methodist. Methodist, for many, many years, and, and uh, folks like that, your assemblies of God, your churches of God, all of those kinds of groups, they have this man-centered theology that changes this order to what we have right up here. That's not what the Word of God teaches. The Word of God doesn't say that. Now, those who say, well, okay, well, they got the election mixed up. I mean, everybody has to believe in election because it's in the Bible. I mean, you can't throw it out. It's in there. Well, get it in the right order. Because if you don't, then you put salvation in man's hands rather than in God's hands. Now, I hope that you can see here how faulty this is because anything that increases our value in salvation at the very same time must decrease Christ's value in salvation. You can't elevate man without bringing God down. It just doesn't work. So, if we say then that our value is up here, or it's approaching where God is, and we both have an input into salvation, then we're saying that man is partially saved by some input that he has, and if he has some input, that means that man is saved by something that is corruptible. I mean, what does the Bible teach? It teaches that we are depraved in our mind, in our conscience, in our will. Even faith, that if, we, if our faith comes from inside of us, then it has to be a corruptible faith. You can't bring a bad thing out of a, or a good thing out of a bad tree. Jesus taught that. You don't get good fruit off a bad tree. It's impossible. So Peter tells us that we're not redeemed by corruptible things. So if we're redeemed or if we have any input into our salvation by contributing faith that arises from inside a man, then it is a corruptible faith. It can never save. It's the wrong kind of faith. Faith itself even has to be a gift of God, according to Ephesians chapter 2. Second thing here is that we are not preserved by our power. There's no value in our efforts to maintain salvation. Now, if a person believes that there's something he must do in order to obtain salvation, then he also believes that there's something he must do to maintain salvation. And so if you have a self-generated faith that helps to get you saved, then it's a self-generated faith that helps to keep you saved. So those who 
believe in things like falling from grace, that you can lose your salvation after you get saved, that's exactly what they believe. They don't have enough faith to maintain their salvation. So if their faith fails, then their salvation fails. Well, strangely enough, did you know that we believe that too? We also believe that if your faith fails, your salvation fails. But you want to, you want to know the difference between us and them? And that is that faith sustained is faith supplied. God is the one who gives us our faith. We would die in a heartbeat and go to hell if our faith fails. But Christ has prayed for us just like he did with Peter. He said, I'm praying for you that your faith doesn't fail. Ultimately, when it comes down to the test of whether you get into heaven, it's because you have faith that did not fail. And that faith was supplied by God. So God is the supplier of our faith. He is the one who guarantees our perseverance and our preservation. It all comes by God's power. Now, we studied this, in effect, in chapter 1 when we were covering the idea of perseverance. And I was just stating the order of salutis in a different way than what I've said it tonight. I didn't reverse the order. I just used a little bit different terms when we were studying it then. Now, I don't want to go into that controversy again, but I do want to say this, that anyone who purports to teach Scripture it'd be very, ought to be very careful about how he handles Scripture. When Paul says, it is God that worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And when he says, being confident of this very thing, that he hath, that hath begun a good work in you will perform it under the day of Jesus Christ, I would be extremely careful about saying that perseverance is not a, a biblical doctrine. So what we have here then is Paul's explanation of why we're different from them. I hope I've given you a little bit to think about tonight. Maybe it'll help you to understand why Brian Baptist Church is different from a lot of them. It's different in the way that we worship. It's different about the right person that we praise. And it's different because we have the right view of our value. Philippians says, For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit. We have that circumcision of the heart. The sin's been cut away in the heart. And we rejoice in Christ Jesus. And finally, we have no confidence in the flesh. Ask me how I'm saved. And I'll tell you, I have no confidence in the flesh. It's all in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time to spend together. We ask you, Lord, to bless this message to our hearts. Help us to have understanding that you are all in all. We sing that so many times. We talk about God being all in all and Jesus being everything. Well, let's prove it by our doctrine. Let's prove that Jesus is really all in all. It's nothing that we do. It's all of Jesus Christ, and that's what makes us different from them. Lord, bless this invitation tonight. Draw us to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.